And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hang on a minute. Who put you in charge? And who the hell are you anyway? I'm the Doctor. I'm a Time Lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Casterberus. I'm 903 years old and I'm the man who's going to save your lives and all six billion people on the planet below. You got a problem with that? No. In that case... Hello, Z! Would you like a jelly baby? My Sarah Jane. Oh, look, rocks. Wibbly wobbly, tiny rhyming. Watch it, space man. Boy, watch it, Earth girl. I will teach you the folly of your words, Doctor! Uh, Smith. Dr. John Smith. This is Duggan. He's a detective who's been kind enough to catch me. You always were an optimist, weren't you? Thank you for the compliment. Hello. Eight in six moves, Master. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 23rd episode of Who True Freaks, the greatest Doctor Who podcast ever produced that has its home base on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. And this time out, we're rounding out our look at the adventures that involve each and every one of the many different actors who have portrayed the Doctor by tackling an episode from one of the most contentious times in Doctor Who history. Yes, today we're going to check out Vengeance on Boros, an episode starring the sixth version of the Doctor, played by Colin Baker. Yep, it's evil corporations run by the despicable offspring of Jabba the Hutt and Salacious Crumb, ineffectual politicians, and a treatise on reality television well before the Kardashians were able to drag that medium into the ground. And joining me tonight to chat about the episodes are my good friends and Hootroo Freak regulars, Mr. Thomas DJ. Hello, Thomas. You know, I just came back from this uh, voting booth here, and I feel awfully tired now. Uh, maybe you should talk to your annoying wife and she can get you all, uh, energized about that. Freaking high and lowest off of people. The, the Andy Cap, basically. And of course, the man only known to the world as Shag is here. Hey, Shag. <laughs> uh, I would, that was my terrible Sill impersonation. Uh, I, I like to take issue, though. You said we're covering all the Doctors. I have not seen anything on the schedule yet to cover Peter Cushing. What's up with that? Represent. Well, I guess, you know, eventually we'll have to get together to do either uh, Daleks, Daleks 20, 2150 
Is that the one? Hey, and, yeah. That's the second that's, one. Yeah. Okay, and the Doctor Who and the Daleks. And it's Doctor as in D-R. Who, yes. So. Definitely, that, we'll we'll do the second. We will have we will have to not do the first one. Okay, we will have to look into that then. So yes, correction, we have not covered all the iterations yet. Plus, we have a special first time guest on the show, someone you may know you may know from his shows Earth Destruction Directive and the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. It's my good friend, Mr. Luke Jacanetti. How's it going, Luke? I am doing great, Sean. Thank you very much. And Shag, I do want to mention you mentioning uh, the Peter Cushing Doctor Who. I am in fact wearing my Doctor Who and the Daleks t-shirt that my wife got me for Christmas. So Peter Cushing is represented on this episode, if only in some small way. That is like the coolest t-shirt. Isn't like, it, though? It's blue, right? With the red yes. Dalek. Yeah, it's an awesome looking shirt. The The only Doctor Who shirt I've seen that I think approaches this one um, is uh, there, there's a Cyberman shirt, and it just it, it looks like a political propaganda poster. And it says, it says, it says upgrade or die. <laughs> nice, nice. I have that one. You do? Oh, that's oh. cool. And the, Although, yes. my favorite is there's one where you have a picture of a weeping angel from far away, and it's glow in the dark, so in the dark, it's she, she's up, way up close. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's neat. clever. Uh, I saw one a uh, couple weeks ago at, uh, at SC Comic Con, it was, uh, as we were talking about before the record, a 12-year-old girl wearing a shirt uh, that simply said, a madman with a blue box. Yeah, nice. I, th- I think you can probably get a lot of those Doctor Who shirts that, that are like that, that are the more the current Who in places like Hot Topic and that. You know, uh, my kids sometimes go in there to shop, and there's just tons of Doctor Who, modern-day Doctor Who stuff there, so that's probably a lot of that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention one more shirt because I think it's appropriate for tonight. Uh, I have a shirt that I've seen many different iterations of, Luke, that you should probably get one. It says, you never forget your first Doctor. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Well, before we get into uh, discussion of Vengeance on Varos, I'd like to say that we've had a an email that has been sitting around for a long time, and I apologize uh, to not getting into this until now, but this one is from Chris and Cindy Franklin. Uh, they wrote in about the uh, Christmas episode that we did with uh, Bill, Dave, and Hope, and it's titled the email is titled, The Very Next Day You Gave It Away. And Chris and Cindy write in saying, Hi, Sean, and Dr. Bill, and Dave, and Hope. I've enjoyed, I enjoyed your discussion of the last Christmas special. It was a nice wrap-up to Christmas Day at our house, with the whole family watching. Those endless BBC America commercials do indeed provide some amount of service, giving us a chance to exchange notes. But I'd still rather be rid of them. The Doctor waking up twice in the volcano really puzzled me. Was it the same volcano from the season, two, the season finale two-parter, or was it yet another nod to Fires of Pompeii, or both? I'm still wondering. He goes on to say, I like Clara, but I hope we aren't quite as mired in her drama the next season. I think we've had enough of that for now. The Doctor seems like her companion more than the other way around. I was actually glad to hear she was staying, because otherwise I was thinking they were dragging out her leaving way too long. I do wonder if Hope was right about the old Clara being the original ending, at least at the scripting stage. Either way, nice review of the episode, and I look forward to your next trip in the TARDIS, Chris. Well, thanks, Chris. Do you guys have any uh, comments on the uh, last Christmas episode? I know, Shag, uh, you were kind of meh on the new season. Have you uh, got a chance to watch the uh, last Christmas episode yet? No. There's only two episodes from last season I haven't watched yet. The Christmas episode, and then there's one other random episode in the middle of the season. Otherwise, I've seen them all, but I just haven't got up the care enough ishness to watch the Christmas episode yet. Hmm. 
anyone else get a chance to check them out? I haven't. Okay. The the part I liked in the Christmas episode was when he was fighting Phoenix outside the orphanage, and he went to Water Dragon and used a blitz. Oh, wait a minute. I'm talking about Kamen Rider Wizard again. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm that was the Kamen Rider Wizard Christmas episode. My my bad. I'm sorry. I'm glad you could at least interject a little of that, Luke. It would be a show with you, honey, <laughs> without making some reference to some some crazy Japanese uh, tokusatsu show. Thank all you I'm, for doing that. All I'm saying, Peter, they show, they show Peter Capaldi wearing a long black coat with a red interior holding his fingers up towards the camera. It's like, oh, wow, hey, Wizard is back, and now he's British. <laughs> nice. But uh, I'd like to say thank you to Chris and Cindy for writing in. We really appreciate the email. And if you guys would like to write in, we've got a brand new email address that you can catch the show at. It is whotruefreaks at gmail.com. You can either catch a, send an email there, or if you go to the Two True Freaks website, and when we post this episode, there should be a link in the show notes there as well. So... But uh, if you guys are ready, if you don't have anything else to talk about, uh, are you ready to get into coverage of Vengeance on Voros? Well, I think we've got a couple of quick things. Um, I've got some news, and then I think we need to do Luke's origin story, too, since this is his first time on the oh, show. Oh, well, that's because I'm an idiot, and I don't know how to prepare these things. So, yes, <laughs> go ahead with the news, Shag. Um, it's it's relative to what we're covering tonight. We're, we're going to be doing as, as – um, what's that guy's name? Sean? I think his name is – anyway, Sean Mitch, we're doing a Six Doctor adventure. And the news is that Big Finish, the folks that create the audio adventures, have – provided Colin Baker with an opportunity to have an official last episode. If you know your Doctor Who history, he was fired from the show. And in between seasons, he just was asked to leave. And then the next season opened with the new Doctor on the floor in his clothes and a wig and some special effects on his face. I mean, literally, that's how they they, they regenerated him. So what Big Finish is doing is they're, they're producing a new story. It's a box set, and it's essentially his heroic going out. They're not changing the regeneration, but they're basically saying this is his big last adventure. And um, it's it's like four different adventures all together in one set. It's called Doctor Who, The Sixth Doctor, The Last Adventure. And I'm looking for a release date here, and I don't, it's coming out sometime this year. Let's just say that. Mm-hmm. September. September 2015. There we go. And let me ask you a question, Shag. Now, normally for these big finish, would we be able here in the states? Would we be able to buy them through any normal channels, or do we absolutely. have to import them from the UK? Oh, absolutely. Well, um, they, they have two American distributors. One is um, uh, Alien something or other, but the one I choose is uh, Who North America. Their okay. website is Who NA. So just Who NA. Um, fantastic folks. Best customer service probably I've ever dealt with from any geek company ever. Uh, I mean, I email them and I get a response back from this guy's wife at like 11 o'clock at night, just telling me whatever I need. They're fantastic. So you can get it to them or you can buy it digitally straight from Big Finish. Mm, okay, cool. That's cool. So again, September and it's four discs and uh, Doctor Who, the sixth uh, Doctor, the last adventure. So what you're saying is that maybe Colin Baker's final word as the Doctor won't be carrot juice, carrot juice, carrot juice. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. It'd be awful funny if it was. It comes right back around to it again. <laughs> That's right. It'd be perfect. <laughs> okay, well, uh, Luke, uh, Shag also mentioned that Luke didn't really give his origin story. This being your first time on the show, Luke, do you want to kind of give your origin story with Doctor Who and how you came to want to talk about the uh, Colin Baker iteration of him? 
Sure. Um, those who listen to Earth Destruction Directive know I'm more of a, a Japanese science fiction guy than a British science fiction guy. But a long time ago, Shag and I did a show which was essentially Ultraman X Doctor Who. And I mean X again in the Japanese version as in Versus, where it kind of came up that they're very similar shows. And that I was into Ultraman for a long time, but only in the kind of modern era discovered uh, Doctor Who and the you know, found the comparisons between them. I, I may have seen one of the Peter Cushing movies when I was a kid, but if I did, I do not remember it. Uh, for a long, long time, I thought Doctor Who was a show about an Asian madman like the bad guy in King Kong Escapes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, there's no accounting for taste. It's like, you know, a Fu Manchu sort of thing, I, I thought. But I didn't understand why that made him popular in Great Britain, but, you know, that, like, there's a lot of things I don't understand about Europe. Uh, but anyway, uh, so the first episode I remember watching was Rose when it first aired on Sci-Fi Channel here in the United States. And I remember it coming on and uh, I was thinking, like, you know, I got a bunch of friends that talk about this show. Maybe I should at least try watching it. And I really enjoyed it. So I got into the show when Sci-Fi was airing it. And I watched uh, the year with Christopher Eccleston and then the first year of David Tennant um, well, as it was airing on Sci-Fi. And while I was watching the uh, the, the uh, second season with uh, David Tennant, I started doing some research onto the old show, you know, where all quests for knowledge start, Wikipedia. And uh, <laughs> you go through Wikipedia and it says Doctor Who, and, and the, the main article lists all the doctors and gives a little paragraph and a picture and then links to their main page. So I'm paging down through it, and it's like, okay, here's a really old guy. Here's kind of a disheveled-looking guy. Uh, here's a guy who looks like he stepped out of uh, the... Uh, the movie First Men in the Moon. Uh, here's Tom Baker. I recognized him. It's like, okay, this guy looks really young. And then there's this guy wearing this crazy coat, standing on the middle of a park bench, wielding an even a, a crazy umbrella. And I said, that looks interesting. <laughs> so I so I click through the Sixth Doctor and I read about the Colin Baker played the Sixth Doctor and he was manic and enthusiastic and crazy and fatalistic and uh, egotistical. And I said, okay, well I'll give this a shot. And I had just watched. Uh, the two-parter with um, with David Tennant about the Cybermen. And I, I really liked the Cybermen. So I, I said, okay, well, Attack of the Cybermen. So that was the first Colin Baker one I watched back when uh, you could find Classic Who on YouTube rather easily. Was just had a day off one Friday. It's like, I'm going to watch Attack of the Cybermen. And oh, I had jeez. <laughs> That's a lot of continuity to go to go into it the first time, man. Well, that's the thing. If you have no idea that it's continuity, it's just it it, it just kind of fades into the background. Um, so, I, but I, I I enjoyed it. I liked all the you know, the running around the sewers and the Cybermen and any any piece of news that he receives. Uh, cyber leader's response is excellent. You know, <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. And uh, so I, I started uh, watching the other uh, six Doctor ones and uh, you know reading about it. And hey, that's how I got into it. Uh, you know, I, I find myself more interested in the, the, the classic or as I called to it from my own amusement show era of Doctor Who than the, <laughs> the modern era of Doctor Who just because uh, I think it's a little more Wild West you know I, I like stuff from this period much like I like the original um, you know Ultraman and Ultra 7 from the mid 60s or Star Trek the original series or Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea from the same era so all those kind of classic sci-fi shows really appeal to me and so the original Doctor Who does in the same way and I just got drawn to, to Colin Baker's, uh, just, like I said, the, he's such a, um, almost, he's almost a ridiculous character. But almost. he has, 
No, but he he has flashes where you get you know, some really you know uh, you can you start to understand him a little more, and I think uh, he's a character that that works really well despite some of the you know problems with the show during this time. I think a lot of it having to do with format, but I think we'll get into that a bit when we talk about the episode. One could almost argue that uh, the Sixth Doctor was bipolar. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, yeah, he does swing from from mania to depression and and back again. Mm-hmm. We see that very early in this episode. So, yeah, I, I, you know, having very little experience with this doctor myself, I'm I'd be interested to see how the character sort of progresses from this or what what kind of, you know. And I'm certain we'll get into the discussion of this of how good of an example this is of Colin Baker's portrayal of this doctor. But uh, that's a cool origin story. I'm glad, you know, you kind of... It's interesting that you see the new stuff, and that makes you want to go back and check out the older stuff. A lot of times, that seems to be antithetical. People see the new stuff, and they just go on from that, and they don't go and review what came before it. So that's Mm kind of cool. And I think part of it is, Shag, you had mentioned this on a previous episode of Who True Freaks, that... The, the the old show and the new show are, are so different in a lot of ways, the way that they're paced, the way that they're scored, the way that the stories are told, that, you know, I, that you had said that you had found yourself kind of having a hard time watching a lot of classic Doctor Who. Sometimes, yeah, I mean, compared to the new ones, sometimes it is harder to watch them than it used to be. Prior to 2005, I could sit through them all day long. Now it's a little bit harder. Right, and, and I think sometimes I kind of lean the other way. Uh, because I, I enjoy, the, like I said, that the Showa-era stuff, the older stuff, because that's kind of what I, I grew up with. So I kind of, I don't know, may, maybe I'm a reverse snob, and I turn my nose up at the newer stuff more that everybody seems to love. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, may, maybe that's it. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, the, the newer show was consciously designed to be more, for lack of a better term, American in its pacing and its formatting. Mm-hmm. Whereas the classic is very British. Yeah, I think just by format you get that having a a forty five minute show, you know, uh, which would air in an hour time slot in the United States with commercials, typically a one parter, occasionally two parters. That you're you're absolutely right, Thomas. That's a very American sort of format to a uh, ongoing science fiction adventure show. Oh yeah, I, mean, I he- think Russell P Davies. Uh, was patterning the show after Buffy mm-hmm. when no he did the, the initial pitch. I mean, Rose was his Buffy, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, and we know how much uh, you love Buffy, Thomas. I mean, <laughs> how much you love uh, Rose, Thomas? Uh, fuck you, Shag. Hooray! <laughs> first one of the show. Take a drink. Um... Well, if you're ready, then we'll go ahead and start talking about this. I've got a little uh, script that I stole from the BBC website about Vengeance on Faros, and if you're ready, we'll go ahead and go into it. Do we have to? All right, then. All that beautiful Just beef rip footage. it off like a band-aid. <laughs> Vengeance on Varos was the second series of the 22nd season of, the Doctor, Who, of Doctor Who and was broadcast in the UK in two weekly parts from January 19th of 1985 to January 26th of 1985. It was written by Philip Martin, directed by Ron Jones, and produced by John Nathan Turner. The cast included Colin Baker as the Doctor, Nicola Bryant as Perry, uh, Nabil Saban as Sill, Martin Jarvis as the Governor, Forbes Collins as the Chief Officer, Nicholas Shargan as Quillam, 
Are we saying that? Chagrin is Chagrin is Willem. Stephen Yurley is a rock. Sheila Reed is Etta, and Jason Connery as Jondar. And the synopsis goes something like this. The Doctor visits the planet Varos in order to obtain supplies of a rare ore called Cyton-7, vital to the functioning of the TARDIS. Varos was once a colony for the criminally insane, and the descendants of the original guard still rule, while the poverty-stricken people are kept entertained by screenings of public torture from the Punishment Dome. Okay. Their governor has been trying to negotiate a better export price for the Zyton ore from Sill, an envoy of the Galatron Mining Corporation, whose reptilian body is supported and kept cool by a mobile water tank. The Doctor and Perry meet two rebels, Jondar and Arita. Perry and Arita are captured and almost reshaped into beast-like creatures by Quillum, the dumb, sadistic commandant, but the Doctor saves them and tells the governor the true value of Zyton 7. Quillam and Varos' chief officer, who are in the pay of the corporation, try to kill the Doctor and the Governor, but are themselves dispatched. Sil plans an invasion of Varos by a force of his home, from his homeworld Thoros Beta, but the corporation veto this and instruct him to buy the Zaitan ore at any price. And that was a very dry and sort of succinct synopsis for this episode. Uh, what are you guys' thoughts on this? We'll, we'll go ahead and with, let's go with Thomas first so we can get the good started and shag you can pipe in whatever you feel like it in other words fuck you shag <laughs> everybody take a drink <laughs> well the thing is to be honest and you know as much as i love this doctor this is my favorite doctor the stories are all uniformly awful and this is probably the least objectionable in a group of really objectionable stories um I think the pacing is off because of the, this is the season where oh, the episodes are 45 minutes. Um, the grotesquity of the Eric Sauer period of the story editing is very much in evidence. Um, and of course, we've got what is the signature monster of the Colin Baker era, which is the Slick. Hmm. Just like to point out that this is supposed to be the good version of this discussion. Thomas is bringing the good points, so. Well, <laughs> you know, if I, well, no, I, it, it, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say, if I, if I could say, you know, this isn't a bad episode. I know last time out, uh, we were actually a little while out ago, we got to talk with uh, Shag and W. Blaine Dowler about the Caves of Androsani, which is regarded as one of the best episodes of Doctor Who throughout its history. It's constantly on top ten list and you know lauded as really good ones. And I think we came to mention in that show, the Doctor really doesn't affect any change in the outcome of what's going on in the in the episode. Essentially, mm-hmm. everything just goes on through the episode, regardless of the Doctor being there or not. Here in this time, the Doctor actually is a force for, for good. He changes the outcome of what was going on on Varos. He, he brings forth the idea that the Zyton Ore could actually make these these people rich if they just negotiated properly. So I think the Doctor, essentially in this episode, was far more effective than the Doctor on one of the most highly lauded episodes. But but go, go ahead and finish up what you were thinking, uh, Thomas. Um, it's, like I said, it's, it's like the least objectionable of all the stories. I will never defend this era. 
I will defend this doctor to my dying breath. I will never defend this era. This era is ill-starred right from the beginning. Um, well, you know. Anyway, why don't you with somebody else? <laughs> <laughs> go, go ahead, Luke. Give, give us your opinion of this. Um, this was, like I said, uh, the second uh, Colin Baker one I watched because I watched him and um, I've been watching him in order. And uh, I, frankly, I, I enjoy it. I think it's it's really entertaining. I like that it's meta almost by accident uh, because it, it makes commentary about reality television that didn't exist at the time that it aired, but mm-hmm. is very much um, you know on point with reality television and not only reality television, but the what they call the second screen experience. Uh, that we get nowadays. Yeah, the whole uh, thing, I, very, very similar to what we'd get with, like, American Idol, where mm-hmm. you could call in and vote for who you want to see, you know, progress on. So, yeah, the, it's the very one, prescient. The, the one that, that I compared it with, in fact, a note I made, a show that uh, my wife and I watch is Top Chef. And in Top Chef, it's, it's your typical reality com, uh, competition show where at the end of the week, they eliminate somebody from the bottom three or whatever, right? And so when you watch Top Chef now, when they have the three chefs that go in to face a judge's table, they, they have an insta-poll. Who do you think should be eliminated? And then immediately, you know, thousands and thousands of votes are tallied from people on their tablets uh, answering the vote. And you see the, the scores immediately on screen. And then five minutes later, when they eliminate somebody, did they make the right call? And it's the same thing again. So watching Vegans on Varas, when it's like, okay, here's my proposal, vote immediately. And here's the tallies. It's like, okay, they kind of, you know, again, it's whether it was just looking forward or one of those happy accidents that happens in science fiction, it was very prescient. And so I appreciate a lot of the commentary on that about, you know, the nature of watching television and, and you know, violence for entertainment and, uh, you know, uh, what you know, the, the illusion of democracy and there's no popular choices in a, in a democracy. So I, I, I like it, and I think that I, I like the Doctor and Perry's relationship because it, it is – people describe it as combative. I don't know that it's combative, but it's certainly uh, – he's certainly not the very nice guy. You know, everybody likes him that we got with um, Peter Davison, you know. And to, to speak briefly to Caves of Adrazani, I think the reason why that episode is so popular – you guys touched on this on your episode – is at the end when you can look down Nicole O'Brien's blouse. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I, I mean, I mean, I'm not complaining either. I'm just saying sometimes you find cause and effect, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, I, I, an I, awful I, character, but one of the more beautiful women who ever was a companion on Doctor Who. You yeah. know, that's some, some. You know, I mean, I've met people in my life, men and women, that are just bimbos, and uh, you know, <laughs> you find them <laughs> among the among the brilliant people as well. So, <laughs> well, she, she, she's not a bimbo. She, uh, I met her last year. Um, She's no, really, I, I, I don't think very, Nicola. I don't think Nicola Bryant is, but I think per, oh, Perry very, Brown is. I'll give you a, a that. Oh, yeah. I mean, wasn't she a flight attendant? No, that was or, Tegan. No, 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 no that was, was She was a student. She was a botany, uh, studying botany. Studying but, botany um, in California. Yeah. Just to go to Thomas's point, <laughs> Thomas, she is still stunning. Just of all the companions, she probably has aged the the most gracefully. She is gorgeous still to this day. To give you a little bit of a perspective about Perry. Perry was, uh, this was Nicole Bryan's first um, acting role out of college. And apparently, this is during a period where Jonathan Turner was trying to expand the, the fan base by including uh, companions from other nationalities. 
So Nicola Bryant is doing a very bad version of what the British perceive the American American has. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. She yeah. spent like a summer in America or something, right? Or she she spent some time in America, so that qualified her apparently. Yeah. yeah. You can notice very very easily that her she slips in and out of her quote unquote American accent quite often, mm-hmm. and I think it was even yep. more noticeable in caves. You know, near the end of it, and she has a lovely speaking voice. Oh in yeah, her she has a lovely couple of things as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, I, you know what though? For for you know, someone who was still relatively new to this whole acting bit, she has some really great moments of really good timing and comedy in this. The one that I always laugh at is when at the very beginning, um, Perry is listing off all of the mishaps and uh, cr- bad things that the Doctor has caused to happen since the end of the previous adventure, since the end of Attack of the Cybermen when they left Telos. And she goes, and then you burned supper. And he goes, well, that could happen to anybody. And she has a great pause and says, you'll remember it was a cold supper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's some that, you know, okay, the character of Perry is not, you know, She's not one of the great uh, shining examples of, uh, of feminine power in uh, in the annals of science fiction, but you know, and you know, in some some ways, I, I like Perry just because she reacts in ways that make sense. She doesn't understand what's going on. She's like Sue Storm in any issue of the original <laughs> run of Fantastic Four. But Reed, what does it all mean? But, but for a girl who's you know she she's a college student she's just getting started in the in in the the quote unquote real world to be thrown out into the universe, I think we might all make questions like that every now and again. <laughs> okay, Shag, you have been disturbingly silent and passive about this. Do you have something? To no say? one's com- no one's complaining about well, that. Well, I wasn't I wasn't that. saying it was a negative thing. I was just commenting on it, Shag. Um, well, first, well, a good thing. <laughs> uh, I'll start off with uh, my mama done taught me to say, always say something nice. Thanks, so, Forrest. I'll start off with that, then I'll share something not quite so nice. First off, I will say Colin Baker is amazing as the Doctor on audio starting in 1999, specifically the Big Finish audio adventures. And a lot of people rave as him being Big Finish's Doctor, even though they've got a ton of different Doctors out there. Even Nicholas Briggs has said in certain interviews, he's the doctor, their doctor. He's the doctor they redeemed. He's the doctor who's expanded and grown the most on, on, in the, through the big finish audios. So what I wanted to do this episode was sort of, as a contrast to this god awful episode where you made me watch, I wanted to provide you guys with some good Colin Baker adventures to enjoy and go out there and seek out. So I'm gonna, throughout the episode here, I'm gonna just name some off and on. The first two I want to mention, one is Jubilee by Robert Shearman. Uh, it's Big Finish, release number 40. features the Sixth Doctor and Evelyn Smythe, and it is basically uh, the story that was the basis of the New Who episode, Dalek. You know, the one with uh, Christopher Eccleston and Rose. That was loosely adapted from this audio adventure by the same writer. So, Jubilee, and it does involve the Daleks, and a Dalek being tortured and all that by Robert, Robert Shearman. Definitely get it. It's one of the best ones out there. Also, the next one I, I was going to mention is Davros by Lance Parkin. Uh, release number 48. This one is great. A lot of people say this is one of the best big finishes ever. You really dive into who Davros is. It's a story of Davros without the Daleks. So you don't get that. A lot. Both the Daleks and Davros honestly work better apart. So this is a really great examination of Davros and really great how Six Doctor bounces off of him. So... I think one of the reasons uh, 
the Sixth Doctor works so well in audio is because it allows Baker's eloquence to come out without having to look at that god-awful coat. Mm. Yeah, you beat me to the punchline. <laughs> well, um, with, with me, the nice stuff just, out of it. Hold on, let me just say one thing, Shag. You, yeah. you did mention, one of the ones you mentioned was Jubilee. Yeah. And uh, I just had an incredibly long car ride back and forth last week on the order of about 12 and a half hours each way. And um, during those that trip, I listened to a couple of the, uh, the Six Doctor audio dramas. And Jubilee was one of them. And that came on your recommendation, and you had said, uh, "Oh, it's 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 a lot like that episode Dalek." Mm-hmm. And so imagine my um, bemusement when there is a scene in Jubilee that plays almost identically to the scene in Dal in Dalek when the Doctor finds the Dalek chained up and imprisoned. Oh yeah, I mean it's all. I mean Eccleston's delivery is almost identical to what Baker was doing in that yeah. audio. So. I mean, it, was, it, was, it was no accident. I mean, Russell I T. Know. Davies heard the audio and hired Rob Sherman to adapt it. So, yeah. So do you so, think it, that do you think that uh, Eccleston was channeling Baker to do? Because I think that was one of the things that when we talked about the Dalek episode back on Hootra Freaks a while back that we were so impressed with was, you know, the way Eccleston, when he first found out that this guy was keeping a Dalek changed up, chained up, the, the, the performance he did about talking about that. So do you think he was channeling Baker in doing that? I, I think he might have been a little bit. I, I don't want to, uh, you know, uh, cast aspersions either way. But I, I think it both of those illustrate, and, th- and this goes to what Thomas was saying also, the, uh, the, the eloquence of Colin Baker as a, uh, from a oratory standpoint when he's portraying the Doctor. And we get this with Eccleston as well. The, the transition from the... Um, Somebody, I think, either wrote in an email or was on the show previously, said what they always loved about the doctor was his first uh, statement was, I'm the doctor, can I help? And so the first thing that he says is, you know, he wants to help this creature that's in pain. And from there, we transition into just disgust at the conditions that this that this sentient living being is being kept in. And then it's the realization and subsequent horror that it's a Dalek. And, you know, Baker does it really well just because his voice is so bombastic, you know, and, and Eccleston channels a lot of that or he seems to channel a lot of that. So whether it was intentional or not, the effect is the same and, it, and it's wonderful both ways. Well, I think it'd be a credit to Baker that he can do that without all the visual clues. You're having to envision this in your mind and you're being able to see what he's trying to portray simply via the power of his voice. Mm-hmm. With Eccleston, he was able to to emote and act, and you were able to see his disgust with his face, and he would show when his eyes got wide when he finally saw that it was Dalek. So the fact that Baker was able to do that without all those visual cues, you know, uh, sounds really impressive. But, Thomas, I, I, I would like you to continue with the point you were making about, you know, uh, the the nature of Baker being able to, to, you know, act without having to the visual side of it. Because I think that, I mean, I love the Sixth Doctor's coat. That was what drew me to him was this crazy outfit. Mm-hmm. But a lot for well, a lot of know, people, I, and understandably, that, that's a huge turnoff. Mm-hmm. I, I have shown uh, Colin Baker episodes to friends who are interested in the classic, in, in exploring the classic. Um, you know, who? And almost invariably, they say they like the character if it wasn't for the costume. Mm. The costume, I think, actively detracts from Colin's performance. And Baker is, as I said, I mean, he is incredibly eloquent. He, he manages these 
bipolar swings very well. So it doesn't appear cartoonish or clowny. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the reasons I, I love the character so much is that he has this sort of vocal, um, just way about him. Mm-hmm. His love of words, his love of wordplay, to me, I think, just speaks to me in a way that other doctors do not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me let me ask you a question, Thomas. I read an interview with uh, Colin Baker where he said when they approached him about playing the character and they said they wanted him to be um, a, a lot different than Peter Davis and a lot less immediately likable, that his thought for the costume was he wanted to wear something very austere, uh, specifically suggesting maybe like black velvet, dressing like a New Yorker, if you will, wearing all black and just being off-putting, and that as he warmed up to... Um, his new persona and his, you know, the role that he was playing as this new doctor, he would slowly, uh, over time, you know, drop the, the, the darker tones and become more, uh, colorful with his costume. But that, that was inevitably, uh, shot down by the BBC who wanted something bright and, you know, that they could immediately market or something. So what do you think? Do you think this? Cause I think that if he had started out wearing the black, that might have been kind of like how, you know, again, with Chris Eggleston, he was wearing just kind of darker street tones. You know, it kind of changed the the tone of his stories a lot. You know, what do you th- how do you think that would have I, impacted I these early? I think that if he, yeah, I think that if he wore something more uh, less riotous, shall we say? <laughs> Um, maybe these, maybe well, these stories. I mean, he's not serviced by other things. We'll get we'll get to that later. At least the character might not be has looked down upon. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that in a way that costume is indicative of what was going wrong with the John Nathan Turner era at this point. Very much so. Now, I, I kind of have to. I kind of have to ask, you know, in general, we don't see much costume changes for the Doctor throughout the iteration of the show. Even Tom Baker, who had technically the longest run on the character on on television, his costume really didn't vary all that much. And I'm thinking that if they 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 don't seem to be to have a desire to adapt, especially in this era, the sort of iconic well, image have, of their, of well, their costumes. What, what yeah, Tom Baker does have one major costume change with, when the Jonathan Turner begin, uh, era begins, where he goes from a more motley assemblage to that very, to, to use uh, a word that they use here, austere crimson. Hmm. Well, he, here's, here's kind of how it all went down. I mean, if you look back at John Pertwee's era, he changed costumes quite frequently. Oh, um, it was it was always in the same style. It was always you know a velvet jacket with frilly sleeves and frilly you know uh, stuff in the tie. But it was, sometimes it was green, sometimes it was you know chartreuse, whatever. It was all these different colors, right? Then you get to Baker. Baker did actually go through probably four different outfits. Believe it or not, he had sort of the Sherlock Holmesy looking outfit. He had you know a, sort of a gray jacket he wore for a while. He had yeah, a short jacket too for a yep, while. Then he, he did. Yeah, he did. He went through several different looks. I mean, they were all the same style, the same bohemian look. And the scarf was ever always present. As Thomas said, there was a major change when John Nathan Turner came on. One of the things John Nathan Turner brought in, though, 
Oh, before I say that, I should say the companions change clothes all the time, by the yeah. way, in the old days. Once John Nathan Turner comes on board, he or, or people advising him were very into branding. And so at that point, when John Nathan Turner comes on, the companions rarely change clothes, and the doctor never changes clothes. And it's always one look. It's for branding, so they can sell merchandise with that character and with that look. I mean, Adric wore the same damn thing the whole time. That thing had to reek to high heaven by the time he died. <laughs> well, I, you know, thinking about uh, you know thinking about over here in the, the states during the time of Doctor Who, Kenner came up with like the Star Wars toys and those all became incredibly popular. So do you think that the idea of merchandising talls and stuff like that and having a uniform look was one of the reasons behind them wanting to make sure that every one of the characters on the show had a specific uniform or specific costuming? Oh yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure that. I mean, it all had to do with branding and merchandising and recognition. Yeah, and you know, the toy. There were action figures towards the end of the run in the late '80s, um, but I'm sure if they could have cranked them out in the early '80s, they would have. Now, I'm I'm gonna steal the show back for a second because you may recall I said I was gonna say something nice, and then I was gonna say something not so nice. All right, that, it's still my turn. Um, this episode, as Thomas said, is the best of a terrible terrible era um, the fact is guys this entire season this killed the show they quit Doctor Who they put Doctor Who on hiatus after this season that's how bad this was they actually took the show off the air for an entire year because this season was so terrible then they ended up canceling the show for four years down the line in fact this era caused me to stop watching the show it was so bad I gave up on Doctor Who I didn't come back till Sylvester McCoy showed up so uh, it's it's not Colin Baker, um, although I would – it's not Colin Baker as an actor. Him on the screen is still pretty tough because of the costume and what they were having him do. But it, it's oh, – the script, the directing, and the production values are horrible. They're absolutely See, that's who I would put – I would lay the blame on was Eric Sowart. Yeah, probably right. The, probably the story right. editor. Yeah, and so, uh, and we can get into the, some of the specifics later, but this, I would not wish this upon anyone. So, <laughs> it's, it's, I'm sorry for those of you that like it. I thought it was terrible. I had to watch it in an airport with a long delay, and I actually would have preferred sitting there, you know, being miserable during the delay than watching this during the delay. And, and see, I have a list here of Doctor Who episodes I've seen that are not as good as this. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead and do, go with that. Do Luke. it, man. Okay, I don't have any. I only have titles for I think one or two of them, but I think my my descriptions will be enough. Okay, in no particular order, the one with the planet full of traffic, or as I call it, the ability to put gridlock. me to sleep, gridlock, or Luke's unconscious. Thanks for playing. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, that that Matt Smith two-parter with the Silurians, or ninety minutes of who are the real monsters here. Oh yeah, the one with the. Oh yeah, that wasn't the one with the plastic. Oh, that was the one with the dig site. Yeah, the site, yeah, yep. the dig site and the Solarians. Yep. I, I I do have to say, for a show that is about you know traveling through time and vortexes and all that, they managed to make uh, Vengeance on Varos and that two-parter with the Solarians, which are have the same running length, but the Solarian one seems to take like twenty times as long. So that's some kind of amazing vortex technology there. Um. That two-parter with the Master and Timothy Dalton. Oh, no, the end of, end of time. time. 
Really? Oh, God, that was terrible. I love shows. Cliffhanger resolution is something for other shows, apparently. Because I love when there's a huge cliffhanger and then someone we haven't seen yet shows up in the second part, literally waves his hand, and all of it goes away. I'd also like to point out that if that one if one of your major plot points was that Obama was going to get on TV on Christmas and announce something that was going to fix the world economy, you've gone a bridge too far in a science fiction show for what I'm willing to swallow. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, the one with the space whale. Oh yeah, the one with the the second one with uh with Amy. Yeah, that one. The beast below. The beast below. Yeah, that was. I yeah. Like that. Yep. Well, that's because you're an idiot, Shag. Yep. Keep on going, Luke. Uh, Fuck the, you, Shag. <laughs> Take the, a drink. Both. Uh, hang on a sec. Both parts of the impossible astronaut. No. Yes, because I no. watched it just waiting for something to happen, and at the end it was like, oh, remember River Song? Isn't she awesome? And I'm like, no, no, she's not. Hated her on ER. Oh. Hate her on Arrow. Hate her here as well. Whoops. I'm sorry. I, I retract my statement. Yes, impossible astronaut's terrible. Uh, I was thinking Impossible Planet. Sorry. I haven't seen Impossible Planet. That's the, uh, um, David's and David, oh, Maybe I have seen that one. Which one was that one? Satan and an Asteroid. Okay. The mean, oh, you mean um, uh, Prince, of, uh, Prince of Darkness in Space. Yes. Sure. <laughs> That's basically what it is. I mean, I'm sure on that one, you know... Uh, um, uh, or I would call it Russell T. Davies really, really liked Event Horizon. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, uh, and the, the only other one, because like I said, I haven't watched that much Doctor Who. The only one I gotta throw on here, and I hate to do it because it's a Colin Baker, is the twin dilemma. I watched uh, this, I have no idea what happened. I really don't. You ask me, what's the twin dilemma about, Luke? I'd say, well, there were twins, there was a dilemma. I, <laughs> I would put, I, there's a Colin Baker story that I would put below the twin dilemma. Time lash. Time lash? Yes! Yes, exactly. <laughs> that is exactly where I'm going, Zach. You know what's funny is that um, a, a couple of years ago, I don't remember if it was uh, what magazine it was, put out a list where they ranked every Doctor Who TV story from number one to number 400 whatever. And Time Lash was the last one. And I remember asking at the time, what's so awful about Time Lash? And everyone's like, I don't know, it just sucked. And I'm like, if it sucks that, that bad, that it's entered that rarefied... Uh, you know, territory where there's no one thing about it that's terrible. The whole thing is awful. It must suck. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's not even one of those like it's so bad it's good things. It's just <laughs> now there's a great reveal at the end, but still it's just terrible. So essentially, it's like the room of Doctor Who, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I'm gonna have to. If actually... That's not nice to, to to Tommy Wiseau. Oh, poor Tommy Wiseau. Okay, well, you know, we've kind of avoided really talking about the the show necessarily. There's some interesting things in the show. One of the things that I found uh, kind of neat was Jason Connery, who is, I guess, mm. the son of Sean Connery, yeah. uh, played uh, one of the characters in here. He played, oh, who was John Dar. Yeah, he played John Dar, and uh, he was one of the guys that you saw at the beginning of the show uh, being tortured in the Punishment Dome. There's an interesting concept there. With a uh, with a little laser beam, and I thought, hmm, where have I seen a Connery <laughs> tortured by a laser beam? That's completely original. So I thought well, that was just kind of fun. Just as an aside, in have you ever read the the novel Goldfinger? Sadly, no. Yeah. Okay. Anyone who's read the novel knows that when Goldfinger straps him down to the table, it's not a laser beam heading towards his crotch; it's a circular buzz saw. That's right. much better. Now, let's let's take that. 
put a pin in it, come back to Vengeance on Varos. Okay, understand it's a science fiction show, and there are certain restrictions that the BBC places us on what we can do. But if you're, now, now imagine that scene with a buzzsaw instead of a laser gun. Now you're talking primetime entertainment right mm-hmm. there. Yeah, that's, that's, if, that's a good Fear Factor episode. What, what do we say in network news? If it bleeds, it leads? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I like about this episode. I mean, you get lines like the um, the chief officer says, we should get at least 10 minutes attention out of this. <laughs> and we'll, we can sell these on every civilized planet. I love the, 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 the very um, casual attitude towards torture and execution on, on television. I love it because it really shows this culture to have grown up from they, they mentioned briefly in, in the uh, episode, it's expanded upon in the, in the target novelization, that this was a prison planet and that the, 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 the descendants of the guards are still the ones that are the ruling class. And so it's that dehumanization factor. It's that, okay, well, if, if you treat people like less than if, – if human life no longer matters, then we can be entertained by watching somebody get – burned to death with a a laser beam or you know blowing up or watching two middle-aged guys in diapers being turned to cannibalism and having them Uh, fight you know that's prime viewing right there so that's i said that that's one thing that really struck me and and i really enjoyed was just the plot aspects of it you know the the and uh you know they they use terms like uh, i think quillen says that he's the controller of the program or the, the controller of programming, which I believe in this time was an actual title at the BBC. That's the, ironically, that's the guy that canceled the show. Yeah, so <laughs> Clear, clearly they knew they were gonna, you know, kind of flirting with uh, with with fire here a little bit. <laughs> so after everything you guys just said, I really want to see uh, an edit of this show now. Was with Sill going, la, 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 la. no, Mr. John Dar, I expect you to die. <laughs> <laughs> No. Well, let us talk about the little the little worm guy. I love Sill. He is great. Like I said, like I said, <laughs> in my... go ahead, Thomas. Go ahead. I was going to say, like in my own opening is... commentary, he was like a, a, a mix between you know Jabba the Hutt and Salacious, Salacious Crumb. If they could have had a creepy offspring, it would have turned out like this, and it would have been brilliant. Mm. Good. Phil is definitely, you know, each era of Doctor Who has their own defining monster. You know, Hardell had the Daleks, Trotton had the Cybermen, um, Peter Davison had the Mara. Phil is, unfortunately, our signature monster. <laughs> it's not the Vervoids, huh? <laughs> no, no, no. See, I, I really the thing about it is that Nabil Sh- is it Nabil Shaban is how you pronounce his name? Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, but that's right. That's good enough. Um, Mr. Saban, Mr. Shaban is having so much fun playing this sleazy scumball character in his little costume, and mm-hmm. and I, again, I've I've read things that he said that if he could only play Sill for the rest of his career, he'd be happy as a pig and slop, <laughs> and he looks like he's having a ball. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, he looks like he's having a ball, and so he's fun to watch because he's he has zero redeeming characteristics as a character whatsoever. <laughs> he is just and, chewing, he's chewing the scenery, you're right. He's just loving it. He's just reveling in it. And as far as the, uh, oh, 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 o
thing goes, uh, there was an interview he gave where he said that he noticed that all of the great do- uh, Doctor Who monsters had very distinctive voices mm-hmm. that could be um, imitated on the playground the next yeah. day. Which is that's why he tr- he was doing with this whole law. Ah, he was trying to create a distinctive a distinctive voice for the Purcell. <laughs> I, I, I think this will come as a shock, but I will say, I. As much as he used it, he got on my nerves back in, what is this, 84 or 85 when this originally aired. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I think he's a great villain. I mean, he's, he represents all the corporate, everything that everyone hated in the 80s. He's very, as you said, distinct. The costume is actually really good. I mean, the, the bit around the face isn't the best, but the body yeah. is believable that that's his body. And you they, know, they, really, yeah, really and having him, having him on his little platform. Yeah, to be built around. To be fair, it's the very costume has improved in his second appearance in Mind Warp. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't bother to rewatch that <laughs> if somebody paid me. But um, and it, did you guys notice the, the similarities with the moisturizing? Yes, and, mm-hmm. and Cassandra. It just very seems very similar. Mm-hmm. Another another villain who needs to be wheeled around by assistants. Right. Yeah. Yep. And, and, I, and I and I like that his. Um, that he, he falls right in line with the Verosians on uh, the, the the you know the punishment dome and the, uh, the the broadcast of executions and torture. He falls right in line with that. Oh yeah. Because they, they both come from that kind of same uh, kill or be killed mindset. It's but in his in his uh, in Sill's case, it's from a, a, his just plain old depravity coming from his greed and his uh, like you said he's, he's every every ridiculous '80s corporate uh, sleazeball. Character, mm-hmm. but in this little worm, and they actually make him a worm for crying out loud. I mean, you don't get more on the nose than that. Yeah, for the longest time watching the show, I thought they were they were doing some sort of trick with the uh, uh, with the water tank underneath him that he was sort of behind him, and it was that kind of mirrored thing where. But actually, he is a uh, he he suffers from dwarfism or some sort of uh, you know he, he's he, he's he's a, he's a little person basically and that was actually him fully in the suit and you know I thought I until I actually did a little more research on that I did not know about it but he he is perfect in this character he's really an interesting villainous character yeah very and, much yeah and I like that he has his own goals you know. That okay, he's on Varus and he's involved with their politics because he's the one negotiating for their only commodity. But his goals are not necessarily the same as the other villains, as the chief officer and Quillum, and even the the governor or if you, the governor, if you prefer, <laughs> kind of vacillates between being a an antagonist and a protagonist. You know, he really he's a politician. He's on his own side throughout this entire thing. But, you know, Sill is, is manipulating all of these guys because, you know, he knows that he, he's going to make a metric crap ton of money doing this. And that's all that really matters. You know, that's all that matters to Sill is at the end of the day, his slimy pockets are lined. You know, the, the politics of Varos notwithstanding. So you throw the doctor into this. And like, I, you know, we had talked about earlier is that this is that this is a, a culture that is clearly messed up. And the doctor's here to help. Of course, being the sixth doctor, he's going to help in fairly proactive uh, ways that usually involve pointing a gun at somebody. Yeah, he does. And Sorry. you know, again, but coming coming to it coming to it as my first Doctor Who, that didn't bother me at all. You know, well, it, did, it wasn't again, str- it's, it's faux pas. 
Eric Soward apparently fell in love with the, the image of the doctor holding a gun on somebody. Yeah. But it shows up in so many of the stories in, in during his tenure as story editor. And like I said, he's the person I blame. He had Davidson I mean, point, pointing a gun damn near every episode. Yeah. Um, there is, throughout the, the, and I don't know if it was Seward thinking that he wanted to make the show more adult or what, but there's this obsession with, with extreme cruelty and violence on, on the, the shows. I mean, we, we get, later on, we get, you know, a, a take on Soil and Green. Mm-hmm. We get, I mean, all the, all the, the various, um, you know, just the the morbidity of so many people. Not in this episode, not in this uh, story, but in so many other Eric Sauer directed stories. So many people dying. Yeah, body counts usually high in his stories too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. It, I've, it, I've, oh, go ahead, Tom. So you finish up, then I'll. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to change the subject. You go ahead. And finish that thought. No, no. You can change the subject now. Well, as you say, I as promised, I I'm. Not just going to be mean. I'm going to say some more nice things. I got a couple more uh, audio dramas to pimp real quick. The Holy Terror, also by Robert Sherman, number fourteen, mm-hmm. features mm-hmm. the Sixth Doctor in Frobisher. Yes, if you're familiar with Frobisher, he is the <laughs> shape-changing penguin from the Doctor Who magazine comic strips. If any Doctor was going to travel with a shape-changing penguin, it was going to be Colin Baker's Doctor. <laughs> and um, they took a ridiculous concept of Frobisher and made it awesome. All Holy- I have to all I have to say about the Holy Terror. All yeah. hail Frobisher! All hail the big giant bird! It was really good, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was really funny. <laughs> if you want another funny one, uh, Doctor Who and the Pirates by Jacqueline Rainier. It's release number 43. Still big finish, by the way. This is Six Doctor and Evelyn Smythe, and it is, I kid you not, a musical. And Colin Baker does an awesome job. It is an entire pirate romp. In fact, they worked in the lyrics at one point. I am the very model of a Gallifreyan buccaneer, and uh, just it is an so, absolute hoot. So it's essentially a take on Gilbert and Sullivan's Pirates of Penzance. Yes. Oh my lord, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to track this down. It is, mm-hmm. and, and it turns a little serious too. After a bit, you're like, oh wow, and it's just, uh, it's really good. So. <laughs> Had to say a couple nice things because I have so many bad things to say about this episode. Pointing um, guns. It's just, it's, and there was, you get the sense he had no problem killing people either. Oh, yeah. God, the, the, the acid bath scene. Yes. He's like, all oh, of a well. Sudden he becomes Sean Connery's James Bond with the, uh, you know, with the quip at the end. You forgive me if I don't join you. Mm-hmm. But again, for me coming in as a fresh viewer, I I was down with that because you know the, these guys wanted to dump him in there, and you know this, he got to remember a thing about the Sixth Doctor is that the Doctor is almost always, with rare exception across all his incarnations, the smartest guy in the room. The Sixth Doctor knows it and wants you <laughs> to know it. Okay, one, well, one thing that we, we dumped on on Time Lash. There's the one moment where he comes across the little fresco of Pertwee and Joe Grant. Yes. And he takes that look, he steps back, takes a look, and goes, hmm, definitely an improvement. And he, 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 
But so that to me, when hit the the quips like that, when he's oh, I'm, you'll excuse me if I don't join you, you know, it's uh, it, it's it's all of it is uh, you know, it's it's almost as if it's not real. It's all just one big game to him because he knows he's figured out the solutions already. I mean, you guys did um, you did the one with uh, Sylvester McCoy. I forget what the name of the episode was. Uh, Web of Fear. Web of Fear. Uh, one of the things you talked about, and one of the kind of defining Every, everything, everything in that everything in that statement was wrong. But okay, yeah. Uh, Web of Fear is Patrick Troughton. So this oh, what did I think? Episode was Battlefield. Yeah, we did Battlefield. Battlefield. Yeah, what was I thinking? It was the one I know that uh, uh, it was him and Ace were in the UK. I remember that. Yeah, Battlefield. Yep. Uh, but one of the things you guys talked about in that was that the Sylvester McCoy doctor he had he knew all the angles, but he wasn't letting anybody in on it until yes. they needed to play their role. Um, the grandmaster who plays chess on some five thousand different boards. Yeah, yep. Colin Baker's doctor is more like the guy that has all the answers and is bragging about it. Hmm. And he's like, I know how I'm going to get out of this. And uh, and and getting to what um, you had said earlier, Thomas, about kind of the 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 almost bipolar personality, the swings between depression and mania. At the beginning of the episode, when the TARDIS breaks down, he immediately goes into that depression funk. Yeah. And goes on about how, oh, Perry will simply starve to death. He has eternities to spend waiting for his own death. But then um, she gets the, the the TARDIS manual, which I love. I love that there's a, a Haynes or Chilton's manual for the TARDIS. As, <laughs> as someone who uses his Haynes manual all the time, I, I love that. Uh, but then he's immediately enthusiastic and smug and and he's all over the place is bursting with energy with 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 his when he enters the manic state you know and uh and 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 it's like well come on perry you know there's no and 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 so he's he's unpredictable you know and they wanted i think that was one of the things that they gave him as a as a point of direction was i i guess for reasons that don't make sense to me they thought peter davison was too likable so <laughs> they wanted him to be a little more i don't know unpredictable but we are talking about a doctor who's one of his first actions was he tries to choke his companion. Yes. Right. And, and and I get everything you're saying about him being different. And now, going back to a previous statement where you said, yes, you were fresh to it, so you didn't mind him killing someone. But think about everyone else who's been watching the show oh, for no, 22 no. years. I understand and that. He just flips completely. a dude into the acid bath and, you know, cracks a joke. But wow. the, as, as, I, as I watched more of them, I, that became very clear to me why that stood out. Yeah, but at the time I was like, oh, "Okay, yeah, that's that's funny," <laughs> you know. But Man. the uh, yeah, yeah, my, my shock is not at you, just the episode <laughs> itself. I do also like. I just want to say one of the um, the it's it's an aspect that unfortunately, again, because of the coat gets lost about Baker's costume, was that he always wore a different uh, cat badge on his uh, on his lapel, mm -hmm. and he makes a point when he's when he's trying his little trick to jury-rig the TARDIS, he scratches the cat badge for good luck. And the idea for the cat badges was he wanted that to be his signature in that the, the Doctor was kind of a cat-about-town character. You know? Supposedly there were, I think it was nine cats hidden somewhere. Not literal cats, but nine <laughs> representational cats. It would uh, be funny if it was nine actual cats. They just opened up a bunch of cans of tuna, hit them on the set. God. Straight to the wall, something. <laughs> Couldn't have made the episode any worse. <sighs> it is somewhere on the costume. Mm. <laughs> He's got cats taped to the back of his costume. That, it wouldn't be any more silly looking. I could give it that. It's like that, that, that Hanes commercial with the shirt made of kittens. You know? 
It's the softest <laughs> shirt ever. All right, couple more endorsements real quick. Uh, I got a bunch of these things, and let me tell you, there's not much good to talk about the episode, so I figure I better get these in. The One Doctor by Clayton Hickman and Gareth Roberts. It's a total send-up. It's all a joke. Uh, very funny. And because you know you have the two doctors, the five doctors, three doctors. This one's the one doctor. Basically, um, it's the twenty seventh release, by the way. And it's the sixth doctor and Mel. Which, by the way, they did a lot to redeem Mel in Big Finish as well. Mm-hmm. But it's it, it's a comedy where the doctor has to face an imposter who's claiming to be the doctor. And then uh, it's sort of a pantomime. So it's a lot of fun if you enjoy the, the humorous stuff. And then Blood Tide, one of my personal favorites. It's release number twenty two. And it, it, to sum it up, it's, it's Charles. What's that? The Silurian and Charles Darwin. Yes. Charles Darwin meets the Silurians. I now, love this one. It's so good. On the Galapagos Islands, and they meet some Silurians. Go ahead, Luke. As I say, now, the, again, to a Silurian episode that's a little over two hours lo- or about two hours long does not feel like it takes a week to watch like the one with Matt Smith. Uh, Are you talking about the... The Blood Tide. Oh, okay. oh, dude, did you listen to it? Yes, I did. Blood Tide was very good. I enjoyed that one. And a great, great, great cameo from another monster in the series as well in that episode. The Merka. A full-grown Merka. And it works. <laughs> and the paint's not dripping off it onto the yeah. floor. <laughs> <laughs> there's two guys under the tarp there. Hey, nothing wrong with that. You know, you guys on the, the case of Androzani, you know, uh, you guys threw out some about the lava monster or something. I think it was Caves of Androzani. Um, oh, the... the like, yeah, the dragon bat creature. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, he's, and and Shags, oh, this is something you might see on on Power Rangers, and I immediately stopped it Whoops. and dashed off an email that I decided not to send because I thought it might be childish, <laughs> saying that yeah, till I was producing better monsters on a weekly basis with less budget, less with less money and faster turnaround time than Doctor Who. Thanks for playing. Uh, Till next time, keep them stomping. But I decided not to write that. Um, but anyway, <laughs> getting on, getting back to Vengeance on Varos. I tell you, no, they, they do a good job with Monsters of Doctor Who, considering that it's British and they're not used to making monsters on a weekly basis like a Japanese show would. Um, but as far as that, one of the things that, you know, we talked about, you know, uh, the fight where the two guys end up in the acid bath. We talked about the Doctor pointing a gun at Quillum and uh, everybody in the control room. Now, he does, doesn't shoot anybody. He shoots the control panel, and, you know, that's, that's all right. It's not like in Attack of the Cybermen where he actually does shoot some Cybermen, you know. Right, but, he uh, totally does. He totally does. There's no question about it. But the one that the thing that's odd to me that stands out every time I've watched this one is that in this episode that's about you know public execution and torture, and has a you know a couple of pretty gruesome deaths in it. The scene that stands out from being a violent scene to me is when the dude slaps Perry, and it's mm-hmm. like it's it's almost like whoa. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's it's, a, it's for violence against one of the main characters, not against some expendable extra. Mm-hmm. You know, it it really, it's I guess it's it's a sign that uh, you know that I as a viewer am emotionally invested in the Doctor and Perry when I'm pissed off at the guy for slapping her across the face like that. You know. Yep. I don't. And again, but it seems odd in an episode that features so much other worse violence than that. But that's the one that stands out in your mind. Well, it's because it became a little more real. It happened to, you know, in Doctor Who, let's face it, the Doctor shows up on a planet, and most of the people he meets dies. That's mm-hmm. how Doctor Who works. So when the violence happens to one of the companions, it seems so much more real, so much more powerful or more affecting. And so when when Perry got slapped like that, it wasn't very much like, oh, dude, kind of <laughs> moment. 
<laughs> Do we want to address the uh, the formatting of this of these particular episodes? Forty-five minutes. This, or this yeah. Season, yeah, this season is unique in that they're made up of forty-five minute episodes as opposed to half-hour episodes. Do we have any reason? Do we have any knowledge of why this was done? I used to know. I don't remember anymore. Hmm. I mean, if nothing else, it yeah. was a, a gift of, from God so that you could get through this crap in two weeks rather than uh, have to sit through it through three or four. I can't remember. I there, was, there was definite reasons for doing it. I, I think it had something to do with because if you there's the one Peter Davison episode, the red, the something of the Daleks. Rev, uh, which also is, resurrection. Resur- okay, it was Resurrection, which were 45, I think it were both 45-minute episodes. And I think that for some reason, Paul, John Nathan Turner loved the idea mm-hmm. and, and ran with it. And it's a mistake. Uh, see, I, I, can, I can see the benefit of it where you only need to have one big cliffhanger instead of three. Mm-hmm. But I think that overall being married to the length more than the format is what hurts this particular story. Because yeah, I think that... I, go ahead, Don. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. All I was going to say is, is that I think that we have a story here that takes 90 minutes, but really, if you make this 65 minutes or 70 minutes, you've got a nice, tight, solid story. There's too much padding to make it out to that full 90 minutes. If you were still well, doing the 25-minute episodes, this is a three-parter, you know? Mm-hmm. I think if they got it down to maybe four or five minutes, it would have been pretty good. Luke, you haven't done the I, line I, I yet. I think that the, the longer uh, episode length kind of emphasizes the filler. You know, because mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of running around in corridors in this. Duh, it's Doctor Who's story. What else is new? Yeah, I was going to say. Well, <laughs> luckily, poison, makes, ivy, poison Ivy. Luckily, they also have a cool bitchin' golf cart to drive around in yeah. corridors as well. Which is awesome. <laughs> hey, that wait a was, minute. Oh, God, the that was fucking ridiculous. My <laughs> note right here on the page, our golf cart technology is light years beyond yours. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, you could have, you like, slow walked past that. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was hover, uh, their hover-around technology wasn't as advanced as ours, was it? <laughs> At least they're not floor waxers, like, right, John? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Last hard cheese. Gristle McThornbody. <laughs> But, you know, I, I mean, the, the thing about, like I said, the format is that being, I think that, that all the stories were at this point. I mean, there were still some um, uh, ones that were um, three well, or six part or three parters. Like the two doctors, I think, was a, a three part, 45 well, minute the, one. The right? three parter, yeah. Yeah. Where that, I, mean, I, I they didn't deserve it. I think it's it's I mean really that that's like I I think it's it's hurt by the format just because of the feeling the need to fill out this length you know mm-hmm. um they didn't do it as often but having I know they've done this on some of the audio dramas where they're just being three parts and then have a, a short afterwards yeah uh that would suit this story better because I'll I'll give you an example the um the the bit where they take Perry and uh Aretta to the right. be transmutated. It's a neat effect. Uh, I like that they get to break out some really nice special effects makeup, and you know we put Perry and in, in, in danger, but ultimately doesn't really serve much purpose because it goes away. It's there as a roadblock. Um, you know we mentioned earlier that the guys in the diapers, Shag's favorite part of the episode. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! But what re- the fuck was that about? 
Oh, it was I, so bad. See, I have a thought because prior to the end of that, the doctor and all his cronies were walking through an area that was really smoky. I'm thinking that was all like residual pot smoke that they were going through <laughs> that was maybe smoked by the guys in the diapers, and that probably had something to do with it. See, my, my thought with the guys on the diapers from a symbolic standpoint was I assumed that was kind of a a, a uh, wink wink nudge nudge joke about uh, professional wrestling hmm. you know um, uh, middle aged white guys in diapers wrestling with each other for you know especially when you look at British professional wrestling which is not as um, over the top with the super heroic physiques as wrestling was in the United States in the 80s you know I'm thinking about I'm thinking specifically of the late great you know uh, giant haystacks who uh you know, clocked in at about 500 pounds and was just a big, big dude, but he wasn't muscular at all. He was just a large man in pretty much all dimensions. Uh, WCW fans might remember him as the short-lived guy Loch Ness before he went back to the UK. Um, but <laughs> Loch Ness? Ness, oh, I, I... Really? <laughs> I, I swear to Rudy, his name was Loch Ness. But anyway... Swear to Rudy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, the... But, okay, when they run into the dudes in the diapers, whether they represent, um, you know, uh, the bad uh, the bad effects of the use of the wacky weed or professional wrestling, it's just another roadblock. We need a roadblock here because we got to kill five more minutes in this episode. Mm -hmm. So instead of them running directly into the, the vines from Infant Island in Mothra, uh, they have to run <laughs> into the guys in the diapers first before we get to the killer vines. That's fine, but they looked like middle-aged, middle-management guys literally wearing a giant diaper with a little bit of dirt smeared on them. There was nothing even remotely threatening about them. They could have hired so many other extras that could have instilled fear or put them in a loincloth instead of a friggin' diaper. It was just embarrassing. It was ridiculously bad. But I think that may be the point. I, don't I think know. that may be the point that it's this ridiculously bad, stupid thing of watching two middle-aged, uh, you know, uh, middle management suck-ups in diapers fighting each other to kill and eat each other and people are watching it and approving of it. Ugh. Maybe uh, I'm giving it too much credit. I was going to say, I think you're giving it way, way too much credit. But you know what? Hey, I, I'm, I'm willing to accept that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, the, I'm, time I'm, fillers, what about Mr. and Mrs.? Oh, I like, yeah. I, I think, actually, they were the best part of the story. Um, not necessarily their acting or their script, but the whole, as, as Luke's been talking about, the reality TV show, the voting, you know, the, the turning on each other, the very Orwellian 1984, which this was 1984, by the way. Dun, um, dun. It, that was, that was probably the best part of the show. Other than, I like the governor guy, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever his job was. He was pretty cool. But anyway, they were the best part of the story, I felt like. Mm. You could hate them, I don't care. I, well, I didn't well, care for you, their, Well, what were you gonna say? What were you gonna say? Thomas, what was the point you were going for? Oh, oh, what well, you're asking me? Yes. Yeah. I, I think it was. I also think that they, they cut to them far too often. I mean, yeah. I, I, I guess the fact that they have to establish the voting uh, aspect of the story, but they just kept cutting back to them mm -hmm. over and over and over again. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that because they almost become like a Greek chorus. Just simply mm -hmm. commenting on the action rather than providing metatextual commentary on the idea of the story, which is where their parts work best. Mm -hmm. Like, 
um, the, the little scene where uh, the husband starts complaining about his food rations and that a working man should, and like Shag said, it's the Orwellian. She's waiting to turn on him to turn him in. And he thinks better of it and, and says, you know, is a, well, a working man shouldn't be held accountable for the uh, rubbish things he may have said in the past and uh, goes back to his, his food rations. But I, I agree, they do cut to them a bit much. Uh, there is one little cut-in shot that I like where they're what the first I think it's the first time that we're on the run through the corridors and uh, the wife says oh I like him the one in the funny clothes <laughs> <laughs> but because if you think about it they, she could have been ta- well you know if, if the doctor hadn't been wearing his ridiculous coat the line would still work for Perry because everyone else wears dark clothes and she wears bright turquoise spandex and hot pants God bless you. Okay. Yeah, nothing not, wrong with that. This is not a complaint. I'm just putting that. <laughs> All right, since I've been a little brutal, I'm going to come back with a couple more recommendations. Uh, more big finish episodes: Project Twilight and Project Lazarus. So good. Two different episodes. Uh, they came out a couple years apart. First one features the Sixth Doctor, Project Twilight. The second one features the Sixth Doctor and the Seventh Doctor. And it's uh, it's a vampire story, and it's a really, really, really well done one. Or both of them, I should say. So, Project Twilight, Project Lazarus, check them out. Then, Thomas, if you haven't heard this next one, you really need to hear it. It's called Ish, like I-S-H. Oh, I love Ish. Oh, yeah, I figured you would. It's the Sixth Doctor and Perry. And as we've been talking about, Colin Baker is sort of a master of the English language. And this episode is literally all about language. It's it's about creating a lexicon uh, a guidebook of of the speaking language, and so they get to do a lot of clever things with language. One of the main characters is a sentient book, and uh, <laughs> it's it's well, I, I say that it almost sounds funny. It's it's not funny though. Um, no, it's, it's a neat concept. Yeah, it's a really clever story, and it's so damn good. <laughs> Glad you enjoyed that one, Thomas. I think it's great. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll throw out two more real quick. Uh, Medicinal purposes by Robert Ross. Uh, this is a story uh, takes place in 1827 in Edinburgh, uh, or Edinburgh, and it features Burke and Hare, the body snatchers, and the doctor deals with them and uh, comes up across this new bad guy called uh, Mr. Cox, I think his name is, who might mm, becomes an interesting villain, and uh, it guest stars this little known actor who really went nowhere named David Tennant. Yes. Yeah. So uh, it's medicinal purposes worth checking out, and then Whispers of Terror. Mm-hmm. Justin Richards is a very another one that's very clever for audio. It the 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 monster in this story is a sentient sound file basically, and so they really use audio incredibly cleverly in this story. Justin Richards, Whispers of Terror, excellent story. That hmm. one also reminds me a bit of one of my favorite films of all time, which is The Conversation. Oh, neat. Um, because it's about the, one of the the plot lines in that in that uh, audio drama is if you take uh, a, a, um, a speech, in this case it's a speech, and you change just enough of it, it can change the entire meaning of the speech, even if the words themselves are the same. So a transcript would be the same, but the delivery, the pacing, the timing. And that that's, that's of course, the, if anyone's seen the conversation, you know, that's the crucial aspect of that, of that film. So yeah, Whis- Whispers of Terror was the first of the audio dramas I had listened to. And it it is a it is great. And like Shag says, make great use of the medium, um, uh, with the monster being a living sound wave, but also just a stereophonic sound. There's a lot of left right channel work on that. It's really fun to listen to and some really ni- with some really nice headphones. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Well, I, I guess I, uh, I'll, if not Shag, I will talk about the actual episode. Um, one of the I've, I've talked about some of the, the meta aspects with doing with reality television. One of the things, again, it's an accidental thing, but works out great for being meta. Right in the beginning of the second half, after the acid bath sequence, they're going to take the Doctor and the Rebel Jondar to be hung from the neck until dead. And so they take them to the old-fashioned gallows set. It's actually a set where they're going to be broadcasting it to, to the viewing audience. So when the set is made of, uh, of plywood and cardboard and wobbles around and you can hear the echoes, it's intentional now. <laughs> because it's a cheap set that they have on the, that the Verocian government built instead of a cheap set that the BBC built. Uh, also has my favorite line of the episode when the, the priest is reading the invocation as he's reading the condemned men to death. And the doctor leans in and goes, do you always get the priest parts? <laughs> Hello. Your appeal has been turned down. I'm sorry. So would I be. I'd ask for one. Do you always get the priest parts? We are gathered here today in the sight of the great video to ask forgiveness and make atonement for three of us who have transgressed the law. What is okay? What that was funny, but what's that bit about? Like, no, because the guy the guy looks like a priest, like a guy who would get always play the character actor who would play the priest. So okay, so Colin Baker's saying is that these guys are actors not really priest on, for the yeah. benefit of the viewing audience on Varos. Yes, these well, are I, guys that are actors, yeah. It's all I, a big I, act. I, I and that's, that. that's the metatextual commentary there, that yeah. everyone is watching this on TV, and this sure. person looks like he's supposed to be playing a priest on a television show. <laughs> that's clever. I did well, not get that. The only thing that... To, okay. The only thing that would have made it and, funnier to me, just to make it a little more British in its humor, if instead of saying the priest parts, it said, do you always play the vicar? That would have been... You know, just a little British touch there, I guess. <laughs> okay, I guess it's just me then, thanks. <laughs> that was fine. <laughs> well, I mean, look at, it, look at it this way. You know, we were talking about it's a prison colony. Mm-hmm. And this is a descendant, so there probably is some memory of a church. Yes. But not an actual priesthood. Mm-hmm. So you know there has to be some guy making some sort of, uh, you know, gobby ghoul. Yeah, but, but they it doesn't. Don't, they don't understand that you know the purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's, there's a priest reading an invocation in what sounds like Latin, but if you listen to him, he's not actually speaking Latin. He's just, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like we used to do, like we used to do in First Friday Mass in school, just kind of that fake singing. Right. <laughs> Then, and I will say this, despite all the violence and all of that in this episode, what is one of the lines the doctor says at the end? This is no time for revenge. So, he's mm. still the same guy. He's just put into some really, really ridiculous situations. <laughs> you know, uh, interesting, from a continuity perspective, this, uh, this is the most well-regarded Colin Baker episode, sadly. 
And there's not a lot of expanded universe stuff that came out of this. You think there would be, because there's a lot of Colin Baker expanded universe stuff out there. Um, Sill has returned. He returned later on um, in the following Colin Baker season in Trial of the Time Lord. You, men- you mentioned it, Thomas. Uh, Mind Warp. Mind Warp. And then he showed up during their missing season in a story called Mission to Magnus. So they've done a book adaptation of that uh, and an audio drama of that one. And then in one of the books called State of Change, apparently there were some residual effects of Perry turning into a bird. So she assumed some of those bird-like features again. And um, other than that, really, I, I couldn't find many expanded universe things of anything that came out of the story, which mm. is kind of surprising. Yeah. But it just, you know the, the thing about this is that what what do you do for expanded universe? You go back there and see that oh the the, the you know the getting rid of uh, you know uh, ritualistic torture and execution broadcast on television wasn't as good as we thought it was, you know mm-hmm. right. I don't well, know I mean, this, it may not lend itself necessarily to, to revisiting. Well, they they figured out a way to do it with Peladon, so they could figure out something. By the way, did it strike anyone a little odd that the Doctor took such a strong position? On changing the course of this planet's, you know, history as it as it rolls out, I mean, he just jumped right in there and purposefully changed their whole history and basically guided them in what to do. Whereas normally the Doctor sort of like gives them a push, he just, you know, cowboyed all over that thing. <laughs> hey, well, s- smartest guy in the room. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also I think he knew that the ore that that only this planet could produce, being so important that he had sort of an impetus for allowing them to suddenly get rich for it because they were being taken advantage of. I mean, him being the, the kind person to to get these people from out, from underneath this corporation that was mistreating them or misusing them is an impetus for him doing this. But yeah, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't bug me, the fact that he did all this because, well, specifically the, the item that they're producing is being badly manipulated by this corporation. And, and he, he needs a portion of that mineral for himself. Mm-hmm. Right, but like, every time he's on Earth, it's always no, we can't change this political situation. We cannot interfere with history. We have to let it evolve naturally. Unless we're on an alien planet that we don't give a <laughs> crap about. Exactly. <laughs> alien planets don't matter. That's You know what that makes me think of? Sean, you'll appreciate this, I think. On Futurama, when they go back to Roswell, yes, and the professor spends the entire episode saying that they can't interfere in any way because they'll change the time stream. And finally, at the end, he launches the ship out, starts firing the lasers, and Fry says, "But professor, what about the time stream? Oh, I'm sorry. Do you have something to say, Mister? I'm my own grandpa." <laughs> yes, <laughs> a brilliant, brilliant episode. <laughs> Yeah, that's got to be 17 times better than this thing was. Well, but Futurama has certain advantages over Doctor Who. It doesn't cost anything extra to draw cooler monsters. That's true. Mm. Uh, and but and they only have a 22 minute format to work with to tell a story, not a 90 minute format to tell a story. So they don't need to pad it out as much. Mm. Uh, but I think your your point is 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 very right on. I mean, it's the same kind of thing you get with. Uh, Star Trek, a lot of times, where we, we are forbidden to interfere, except when we have to. Or, right. uh, my, or, or Uatu the Watcher over at Marvel Comics, who is destined never to interfere, except I do every single time I show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, 
the joke that my friend Adam and I have is that, um, you know, the other watchers attempted to have an intervention for Uatu, but since they are watchers and can't take action, they couldn't do anything at the intervention, thus it didn't stick. <laughs> so. Oh, Adama. <laughs> yes, yes, my good friend Adama. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, I mean, he does. He just kind of goes in and, um, you know, uh, um, he wrecks up the place, for lack of a better term, you know. But it, it goes towards the, you know, the idea that the doctor is ultimately a, a, a someone who wants um, justice, you know. This this is a messed up, ridiculous culture, and these are are humans essentially that are doing it. Yeah, they're on a different planet, but they're humans. They're not, you know, they're not like um, the Daleks or something where they're uh, been genetically modified and engineered to be cruel and, uh, you know. Um, um, conquerous people these are actual humans that have you know determined that some lives are not worth anything and some are and that the ones that aren't worth anything can be disposed of in amusing and humorous ways so it it doesn't i agree with you he goes all out balls to the wall to screw up their their government and society and to change it to what he thinks is right but that's the kind of thing that i think would get the doctor pissed off enough to do that Mm, especially this doctor yeah, someone who likes being proactive. Now, Luke, have you read the novelization of this one? Yes, I have. Is it actually, good? It is. I think it's pretty good because it does. It expands upon the what we see on the screen. We get to see some downtime from the governor, mm-hmm. where he he uh, kind of bemuses about the the system of government and the the twelve. It's like the Council of Twelve that they pick the president from, and uh, the history, of the planet, and all that. There's also an additional sequence uh, towards the end. Where Perry and the governor have to, when they're when the um, they sabotage the governor's chamber during the last vote, when they have to scramble on the outside of the planet, which is not hospitable to human life. Oh wow! That's why they're always. So they make a point about that Varos is this really nasty place. That's why they made it a prison. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like the very end of the black hole where they got to scramble the EVA without the suits. Hmm. So it's kind of that, and so it's just, it's just a little action sequence in there. I I liked it, like all the Target novelizations that I've read. They're they're pretty quick. They're not real deep, you know. But they they if you like the episode, you know, or you, you'll enjoy it. But I think in your case, since you didn't really care for it, it does kind of you know do away with some of the ridiculous parts because it's not as visual, but it has a, a few extra kind of deleted scenes in it. So that's no where guys I, that's, where I was, that's where I was going with this was. Maybe for those of you who haven't watched the episode, but some of these, you know, concepts, you know, whether it be the Orwellian issues or whatever sound interesting to you, maybe read the novelization. Skip watching it because it's really unpleasant to watch. It's really horrible. But read the novelization and I think you'll glean the best parts of it. And maybe, you know, like, listen to audio, Colin Baker do something else and look at a picture of uh, Nicole O'Brien to get yourself through it. Maybe that one where she's in the bikini. What was, which one was that? That's Kate not bad. Planet of Fire. Planet of Fire. Or, or as we say down here in the it's South, Planet of Fire. The first shot uh, that we ever see of Nicola Bryant is a somewhat lascivious uh, up and down, if I remember correctly. Where she's on the boat, right? God bless yeah. her. Yeah. See, the first shot I saw of her was in the, the, the outfit she's wearing in Attack of the Cybermen, and then running back and forth up and down the street, so... <sighs> Good times, great memories. <laughs> All right, well, i got a couple more honorable mentions, and then I'm done here. Uh, the Apocalypse Element mm-hmm. is the 11th release. Interesting one. Russell T. Davies actually made a comment on this one. He says this is – he kind of sees this as one of the critical phases of what led up to the Time War. 
So interesting to say that you know it's almost canon. But the interesting thing about this story is it's it, they could not have possibly fit more stuff into this. It's got Colin Baker. It actually Romana comes back for it. You have Gallifrey, and you have the Daleks invading Gallifrey. This one is the summer blockbuster action adventure, big time one. Uh, another one, Arrangements for War. More of a, it's it, release number 57, a very quiet story about the Doctor and Evelyn. And rather than the Doctor, you know, getting involved and leaving, they stay. And they stay for a long time on this planet. And she falls in love and gets into a relationship and it's really a strong, powerful story. I, I like this one. It's kind of controversial. Some people hate it. I love it. Arrangements for War. And finally, this last one is actually uh, what's called a Companion Chronicle, which means it's a story told by the Companion, almost uh, first person, usually like a two-hander. And this one's about Perry. It's Perry and the Piscon Paradox. It's, uh, it's a long one. It's a little bit humorous. It's uh, written by Nev Fountain, and it's released uh, 5.07, which means it was the fifth season of Companion Chronicles, the seventh release. Hmm. And it has uh, some, some cameos by Peter Davison and cameos by Colin Baker. And it's Perry's story of an older Perry meeting a younger Perry, and some of that, and some of the funny bits, and then all of a sudden at the end, explains a lot, and gets real serious, and I swear to God, I cried. Hmm. Um, it was that powerful by the end. So... Companion Chronicles, Perry and the Piscon Paradox. Definitely gotta it's check a, that out. Yeah. yeah, it's it's amazing. So uh if I could just add one audio drama to the ones Chag has listed, one that I really enjoyed was a, a an early one called The Marion Conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, this is where Evelyn Smythe is first introduced. Yes. Because the story starts with her teaching a class and the doctor kind of wandering in. Yep. And uh, as the name implies, they end up in um, Marian era of England. And not not as a spoiler, but there is one of the absolute funniest cliffhangers from any science fiction show I've ever seen takes place in this, where, like I said, they're in Marian England, and Evelyn believes they're in Elizabethan England. And so at the tavern, she offers a toast to the good Queen Bess. And it goes dead quiet. <laughs> <laughs> It's a ooh, that's not good. So that I would uh, the Marian conspiracy I thought was really great and a good introduction to Evelyn Smythe, who, um, you know, one of the complaints that I, I read a lot about Perry and I, I kind of agree with them is that with Colin Baker she doesn't stand up well to him because they they get snippy with each other but she doesn't have the kind of intellectual chops as a character to go toe to toe with him. Evelyn does. Evelyn is a professor of history, and she is very smart and doesn't suffer fools. So she and the Sixth Doctor are wonderful together. I've always said that uh, one of the, the faults of the John Nathan Turner era is that he always comes up with the perfect companion for a doctor just before that doctor leaves. <laughs> yeah. I think that, I mean, judging from the two stories that Perry is in with Peter Davison, she would actually have worked a lot better with him. Mm-hmm. Could be. No, she it, was hired. Even though she was with Davis, and she was actually hired to, to start with Baker, so she was the transition. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I could, what you're saying. Yeah, I could see that. The, the two younger folks, you know, having adventures through time and space. I could totally see that. Mm-hmm. And then, and, so how would you explain Mel? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think I think if you uh, if you extrapolate on carrot juice. And, and, no, I'm serious. And where Mel would have mellowed him out and kind of, you know, been the, the nagging, 
you know, the, the nagging friend that's always like, you shouldn't be eating that, you know. It's like, are you he sure you want to do that? The one thing he's insecure about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't challenge him uh, in intellect. She challenges him because, and gets him off guard because of his appearance. Well, I think that could have worked from a comedy aspect, certainly. But Bonnie yeah. Langford is definitely redeemed in, in the Big Finish audios as well. And, um, and, you know, I'm sorry to talk so much about Big Finish. For those of you who are really desperate to hear about Vengeance of Navarro, I know I talked about a lot of other stuff, but I, I just am not a fan of this, and I wanted to put out there stuff that I think gives Colin Baker a chance, and, and the companions too, to really showcase their talents and show you what great Doctor Who can be and how great they are in the roles. This Vengeance of Aros is not it, and some of these other ones I've talked about are those chances. Okay, then. Well, do we have anything else that we want to wrap up the show with, or are we good? Oh, fuck you, Shag. <laughs> I was drink. promised that at the end, Luke and Thomas would do the diaper battle. I thought that's what that's kind of why I hung around this long. Uh, thank God this isn't a video call. Then. Yeah. <laughs> In an audio medium, anything could happen. <laughs> just just put that in your minds, folks, and we'll end the show that way. Oh. Thanks, everyone, for downloading and listening, and we'll be back next time for another episode of Who True Freaks. Thanks, everyone, for coming on. Thank you. Have a good night. Good night. Fuck you, Thomas. <laughs> ah, turnabout is fair play. Okay. Carrot juice, carrot juice, carrot juice. <laughs> Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks.
Soltex. 